Mr. Guy Zombie Hunter is a delicious zombie apocalypse caper of ridiculous proportions. Our reluctant F-Goblin hero, Mr. Guy, explores a smattering of zombie apocalypse tropes trying to find the cure. Each chapter is paired with a different illustrator, giving this ongoing story rich variations in flavor to keep the reader turning them zesty pages. We're kickstarting Act 1 of Mr. Guy from July 1st to the 31st, along with Oneshi Press's 10th Comics Anthology, Origins. For more information, visit Mr. Guy comic.com Hi, this is Marjorie Liu from New York Comic Con and be sure to listen to Adrian Has Issues. Hello, you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, the conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. Today's guest is Erica Schultz, comic book writer, editor, and editor. She was most recently on episode 148 entitled Channing Tater Tots. And as is often the case with Erica and I, uh, we get into some fun, irreverent, and yet somehow insightful conversations about cheesy action movies and character actors that like three people are keenly aware of. And at the time of that recording in that episode, her latest title, Forgotten Home, through Comixology Originals, was just being released. And since then, and as of this recording, Forgotten Home has been collected in trade format, also through Comixology Originals. And now with the full series out and collected, I uh, wanted to take some time to talk to Erica about the book and also acknowledging the fact that since that other episode... Needless to say, the entire world has uh, gone through some significant changes. We started catching up and rolled into the conversation. I had forgotten a standard introduction, so I wanted to do so now and let everybody know about Forgotten Home and also the title's amazing creative team. So, Erica Schultz, of course, is the writer and creator of the series, art by Marika Cresta, colors by Matt Emmons, Color Assist by Cassie Anderson, Sam Bennett, and Jackie Von Spanks. Letters by Cardinal Ray. Single Issue Covers by Natasha Alterici. The Collection Covers done by Bill Sienkiewicz. Forward uh, was done by Sam Maggs. Additional Edits were done by Chip Mosier and A.J. Schultz. And Forgotten Homes logo was designed by Kevin Marr. And Yisaleala did the royal garments for the Janadin characters in the book itself. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you again, Erica, for your time, and thank you all for listening. This and every episode of Aging Has Issues can be found on aginghasissues.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. Without further ado, here is episode 156. Hey. Hey. What's up? Not a lot. How are you? Still alive. Yeah, that's that's like the bar. That's the bar. That that really is. And yeah. all those times that you know people ask, "How are you doing?" I was like, "Oh, just surviving." And I know that sometimes sounds like a really terrible like response, but I think that's never been more true. And that's it. I make no more apologies. Yeah, I mean, like, what else can you do? Literally, it's like that's where we're at. So I get it, man. I get it. It's amazing because you weren't even on that long ago. This was what, the fall? Yeah, it was like right after Comic Con. I remember you still kind of had like convention voice. It's funny you say that because um, remember I told you like it was, you know, pneumonia kind of thing. Right. Somebody said to me like, and you know, I mean, it's somebody who's a little conspiratorial. So I kind of take it with a grain of salt. But they right. were saying, oh, you know, COVID's been in the U.S. since the fall. You know, maybe when you had what you thought was pneumonia, you really had COVID. And you're not the first person to say that. I know a few other people who had like really bad, you know, they thought maybe it was a stomach virus or something else. And then, of course, I'm thinking like, holy shit, you know, did we all have something and didn't know it? And it just, I tried not to like follow that train of thought, but it, it did kind of have me spiraling a little bit. Yeah, because when I went to the doctor, because I thought it was pneumonia. I legit thought it was pneumonia. And when I went to the doctor, the doctor did a chest x-ray and the chest x-ray came back negative for pneumonia. And I'm like, 
well, it's got to be pneumonia because what else is it? And all the symptoms that they talk about, like the worst chills, the worst fever, all that stuff. Right. I was on like a cocktail of antibiotics and cough suppressants and this and that. And the next, like I felt I was taking like a handful of pills every four to six hours kind of thing. And I couldn't breathe. I was on an inhaler. But like I said, I mean, the person I heard that from is a little, you know, a little wacky. So I don't want to like, I don't want to take it like super seriously. Like I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but at the same time, it's like, could it have been? And it's not like I can get an antibody test. Right. It's not like I can just go to the doctor and be like, test me for antibodies. Cause two things. One, I have no idea how long antibodies last because if this is what I had, I had it in October. It was like seven months ago. Is antibody still going to be in me? Yeah. So I'm genuinely wondering And then, you know, there's all these other like articles, like I read an article about how people with O blood are less susceptible than people who have A blood. So I know that I'm O positive, but AJ's A positive. So does that mean that he's more susceptible than I am because I'm O positive? I don't know. For me, the biggest anxiety of this whole thing is that every time someone thinks they know something, they're proven wrong. That's been the scariest part. It's almost like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's like the um, invasion of the body snatchers are like the thing. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, do you have it? Do you? Are you going to be an issue? And then everybody starts freaking out and literally turning on each other. And like the fact that we again, it's been how many months, and I still couldn't like give you a concise rundown of what this thing may possibly be. Yeah, um, one of AJ's really close friends from college had it. She had no fever. She had no chills. She had no nothing. What she had was what she described was the worst case of food poisoning that lasted like two weeks. She was basically on the toilet, vomiting and throwing up and having diarrhea for like two straight weeks to the point where she like lost like no joke, like almost 10 pounds. Oh my God. That's like almost like dysentery. Do you know what I mean? Right. That's actually kind of more what it sounds like. So she was like, at first it was like, oh, we had takeout like two nights ago. Maybe it didn't sit well, like her and her roommate. But then it's like, this is not food poisoning. This just keeps going. And guess what? It was actually COVID because when she went to the doctor, they gave her the test. It came back positive for COVID. And she's like, but I don't have a fever. I just can't keep anything down. And they're like, nope, it's COVID. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought COVID was supposed to be like pneumonia. It was supposed to be like the flu. Nope. Apparently it's like also like dysentery. And now she's getting tested because all that stress on her kidneys that whole time, she damaged her kidneys. Oh my God. She's my age. She's 43 years old. She's got damaged kidneys now because of that. And so she's now going for tests to see if she has the onset of kidney disease now because of that shit. So it's like, what, like, what even is this? Like you said, it's like some sci-fi movie. Like what is even happening? So yeah, this, this whole thing is like just fucking wackadoo. And I just, I don't understand any of it. And then like, I'm freaking out because like, I'm worried about my friends that are going to the protests. Like, I don't want them to get COVID, but at the same time, like everything that they're doing is 100% necessary. And right but I'm terrified that they're going to get COVID and I'm worried about them. Although I do have to say the Supreme court, that decision today is very good about um, LGBTQ people being, they can't be fired. Oh, I didn't even read the news. Cause I was terrified and I was just kind of like, I was not looking forward to figuring out what was going on. So that is good to know. There was good news that the Supreme court struck down the ruling saying that people could uh, fire you based on your gender identity or your sexual orientation. And so that was struck down. So you cannot do that. So basically all the, you know, no offense to the red states, but all the red states that are like, oh, you're gay, we're not going to hire you. Oh, you're trans, we're not going to hire you. They can't do that. It's nice to have these have some sort of progress being made. Exactly. Now we just have to get all these fucking bag cops that are killing people left and right to stand trial and be convicted of murder. And we need to fucking start with reparations. We need to look into ways of getting all this, you know, all these gentrification money that they put in so rich people can, you know, 
take, you know, homes away from people who've lived there forever. No, you want to put money into a neighborhood, the people who live there fucking stay there. Like put money into the neighborhood. Sure. That's great. You know, help fix up the local hardware store, help fix up the local diner. But these people are staying where they live. Right. None of this fucking kick them out bullshit. I'm with you, man. Like, I just want to stand on the, on the roof and scream so loud. And I told AJ, you know, I'm 11 years sober. And there's a part of me that's like, dude, you're 11 years. It's not like you're 11 days. Like, what the fuck are you talking about struggling with sobriety? This is old hat for you now. I'd imagine it's still struggling nonetheless. Yeah. And I told AJ, I was like, look, I got to be honest. If the fucking president gets reelected, God forbid he does. I was like, I'm going to have to fucking check myself into a place. I'm going to have to check myself into a 30-day rehab because I'm going to want to just escape. And I don't want to do that. So I want to preemptively check myself into rehab. Because anytime I try and look up like an AA meeting or something like on Zoom, there are people that are like Zoom bombing AA meetings. Like, oh my, what the fuck? So like you'll be in an AA meeting and everything will be cool. And, you know, you're going around and you're sharing and then somebody will jump in and start screaming like, I love drugs. Oh, drugs are so great. Or something like that. It's like, are you you fucking dumb? Dumb doesn't even describe it. Like how shitty is your life that you've got a Zoom bob of fucking AA meeting? Like, really? So I'm like, I'm not even going to AA meetings online because I don't want to have to deal with those assholes. This is like, this is fucking ridiculous. I can only imagine what you and any of my other friends who get harassed by the cops feel. I can only imagine that. And I said to, uh, I don't know, do you know Ray Anthony Height? I've heard the name. I don't think we've met personally. Okay. uh, He's an artist. Um, He's done a bunch of stuff for for Marvel and he's got his own book, uh, Midnight Tiger. Ray and I've worked together on a lot of things. And he's fantastic. And his wife, Shayla, is amazing. Uh, they live out in L.A. And I said to Ray, I was like, I'm sorry for not tearing down the Trump flag of the guy who lives like two or three blocks away from me. Like, I'm sorry for not like just walking over to his house and tearing the flag down because I know the dude has a gun and I'm afraid of him. And I'm sorry for not shouting. And I don't even know why, but there's a dude who is either black or Afro-Latino who has a Confederate flag like hanging up in his backyard, but he's not white. So I don't understand. I'm so confused by it, but I'm like, and I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm not ripping down that flag because he's got a big ass pit bull that I'm terrified of. I also know that like the wrong people are actually apologizing. I feel. No, because I don't think there's any wrong people apologizing. I think everybody has to apologize. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is like the people who are really like, and don't get me wrong, the the cop thing is a huge part of it. But then there's the number of times where I've had someone look at me and literally like almost run me off the road, like on a highway. And then looking at like, you know, the bumper stickers on his car and realizing, oh, that's what that was. It wasn't that he just was changing lanes. No, it's just he's a fucking Trump supporter. Right. Or, you know, the people who will yell racial epithets at me as they drive past me. Or the fact that, like, I still get followed around in stores. It's the police brutality thing is a huge part of it. It is. And I would never sit there and say that it's not. But even if we were to actually get a handle on that, there's still all of these microaggressions and some of them not even that really micro that happen on a day to day basis. Like, it's a lot. It's traumatic is the only word I could think of, as it has always been. And then, you know, a lot of people, and in good faith, have reached out to me, but it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to tell you. You know, I guess I appreciate, you know, you reaching out, but I don't know what it is I'm supposed to tell you. Like, I was talking to my friend Daryl, and he's like, because I was saying to him, I was like, I'm sorry. He's like, Erica, stop apologizing. Like, I know where your heart is. I was like, yeah, I know, but I still feel like, like I need to apologize. And he says, you know what you do? Just tell people to vote. He's like, that's all I can tell you. To, he's like, I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but you tell people to vote. Tell people to vote. Tell people that this is what you need to do. Like, who the hell was I talking to? I was saying to somebody, I was like, you know, I'm really lucky that part of the school menu at my high school was Jamaican beef patties. <laughs> and they're like, what does that mean? I was like, it means that 
I had like the high school that I went to was so diverse that they had something like Jamaican beef patties. Like you could get your pizza Friday, you know, or your fish sticks or your crappy burger, or you could get Jamaican beef patties. Like that was part of the menu. I'm one of the lucky ones to have been raised in a town that's so diverse that like, you know, I can't imagine people going to college or going to high school and never meeting a black person or a person, not even just a black person, a person who doesn't look like them, you know, whether it's a Latino person or a Native American person or whatever, a person who doesn't look like them going to high school or going to college and that being your first interaction. I'm like, I was in literally preschool. Like there's a photo of me as a little girl with my best friend, Juvenz, whose mom was an Haitian immigrant. You know, and we're like, what, like three, four years old. So I'm one of the the lucky ones. Like I'm one of the privileged ones for that. And I feel like I need to tell people like the fuck is wrong with you just because the first time you met a black person was high school or college or at Target. What does that mean? Does that just mean that like you're just going to be a dick? Like what the fuck? Like what is going on in your brain? Like this is why I said like it should be legal to just grab somebody by the shoulders and shake them really hard. Like, cause there's a lot of fucking people. I just want to shake really hard. Like it makes no sense to me. And as a white person to say, it makes no sense to me. People are like, Oh, you're virtue signaling. And I'm like, no, it no. makes no sense to me. I, but I understand why they say that, but I say, but no, but it doesn't make any sense to me because here's a photo of me as Juvenz when we we're three years old, there's an actor named Gavin Houston who I went to kindergarten with and I've known Gavin my whole life. And I'm like, I will show you photos of me and Gavin Houston. He happens to be a black actor. Me and Gavin Houston, like, in the third grade in Catholic school together, like, at St. Anastasia. Like, I'll show you photos from us in, from high school when he was on the football team, and I still had a crush on him, you know? Um, like, this is, this is what I was always a part. Like, there was no weirdness for me because it was always the way it was, you know? Like, I didn't grow up in, like, a super white town. So because of that, I'm just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get the problem. Just like I grew up with a gay cousin. So I never understood the racial inequality, the uh, inequality against gays and lesbians, because I grew up with a gay cousin. So why would that be weird to me? And that's where my ignorance comes from. Right. But you are a person who thinks and is able to look at these things in yourself, you know, good and bad, right or wrong, and actually figure things out. And I mean, I had this discussion the other day was that like a, a good chunk of people and a lot of ones that even that we deal with are very simple. It's, it's kind of like a video game or something where, you know, you get to the certain level, you have these certain items, you have all these things, and then just saying to yourself, you're good. Despite the fact that those things that you have, you're ill-equipped for what's going to happen in later stages or whatever, but it's just that you have it in your head, not you personally, but like they, I should say, have it in their head that where they are in their mindset, in their just day-to-day, they're good with that and they're okay with that. And anything outside of these, these parameters is too much to deal with. And it's not even just a lack of care, it's this almost like aggressive aversion to it how do you reason with something that is inherently unreasonable hate is nonsensical like it makes no conceivable sense and i feel like if it did make sense to me and i was able to reason it then that must mean i would have some sort of like similar mindset like i would also have a propensity to like do these similar things or think these similar things and a lot of it you know is programming too but at some point it's like you have to be an adult and be responsible for your own thoughts. I'm like, yeah, I know some people like they grew up in really terrible households, but they have grown up and been for the most part progressive and attempt to be on the right side of history. You know, they may make mistakes and there's a lot of times and even some friends of mine haven't realized that things that they were saying were harmful. Like we're still even having these conversations now, despite the fact that some of it's been like years ago. To me, it's that idea that you never stop learning. You should never stop learning. Ever. I mean, if you feel like you've hit the peak of the mountain, then jump off the mountain. That's the thing that kills me. And I deal with this with teaching a lot. You know, people are like, oh, well, I got to write for Marvel or I got to write for DC. I've made it. You know, whatever. It's like, no, you haven't. You never make it. That's the point. So there are people that would turn around and say, 
you know, I'm never going to trust this person or I'm never going to trust that person or that type of person. And that's fine. And I get that because like we talked about trauma, you know, like I get being, you know, traumatically experienced by a cop and you being afraid of and wary of every single cop. Like I get that at the same time, I try not to paint with a broad brush and I do because I hate all Trump supporters, even though I'm sure there's some, you know, they think they have decent hearts, but my broad brush is no, because if you support that fucker, then you're supporting a whole shit ton of stuff. You know, do I want them to die? No. Do I want them to realize the error of their ways? Yes. Is it going to happen? Likely not. And that's really fucking hard, but it's not even drop in the bucket compared to what you have to go through and to what Eileen has to go through and to what other people have to go through simply because they don't look like what is considered the social status quo, which is fucking bullshit anyway. The one thing I just need people to understand, and I guess this is sort of where I sit on all of this, is I guess metaphorically speaking, when it comes to him, if the Emperor gets thrown off the ledge into the reactor and the Death Star gets blown up, the Empire doesn't automatically fall. Yeah, there's still a lot of people everywhere. You know, it's not like the mothership goes and, and all the drones fall. Right. It doesn't happen that way. It'd be nice, but... Well, you know what's actually um, an analogy to that, if you think about it? You know how in the Middle East, uh, whether it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever, they always talk about, oh, you get the head. You know, you, you kill the head of Al-Qaeda or whatever. There's always someone who rises up. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's what they found. Like, you know, they killed Osama bin Laden in, like, what, 2014, 2015, I mean, yes, it made a difference technically, but it didn't really because then you turned around, you had ISIS. So it's like there's always going to be somebody to sort of fill that, that vacuum, I guess, like that power vacuum, you know, for lack of a better term kind of thing. There's always going to be somebody who's going to want to fill that. You know, I think there will always be hate. And, you know, I don't understand it, but someone once said to me and, you know, I was rude and I was like, well, fuck you. That's stupid. And I probably should call and apologize. But, um, I asked somebody like, why is there always so much hate in this world? And they said, because if the world was only good, we wouldn't appreciate it. So you have to have hate so you can appreciate the good. I was like, all that does is make me say, fuck you more to the hate and get angry and depressed and just give into it. And they're like, well, then you just have to try harder. And that's, that's when I was like, fuck you. You're an idiot. and walked away kind of thing. But that's my own stupidity. Like, that was my own ignorance. No, because that would actually set me off as well. Because it's like, I see where you're going with that. And, I, you know, you had it to a point. But that's not how that works. But, I don't know, that's my personal opinion. Feel free to disagree. But I, I think that's something of a not well-thought-out take. Yeah. Because if there was only good in the world, then it's like, I don't, we wouldn't have to worry as much. Yeah. I, I would think that that would be amazing if there was only good in the world. The only problem is, though, my definition of good and yours may conflict with someone else's definition of what they consider good. Well, then they're hateful. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, that then that's then that's the way. If if their definition of good is something aside from people being equal, people making equal money for the work, people not having to worry about health care or housing or or things like that, then they're hateful. But yeah, I mean, I, hey, I'm supposed to be promoting a book. Woo, promoting books. <laughs> and like I get it, it. It feels weird. The best I can say is, you know, something that my sister and I had been discussing, there's different ways in which we can approach this, and there should be different ways. Uh, some people I know are content with marching. Others have been dealing with it financially. You know, they are in the, have the ability to do so. I guess being creators and are in different facets, you know, we have platforms and to the best of our abilities, you know, we can use them to support and to amplify and, you know, do it in that way. And I also know that sometimes, even with all these things going on, putting some good into the world, something of value, something with heart, maybe doesn't necessarily cure racism. And to some, they may argue that's not enough, but I feel like at least it's a step in the right direction versus just putting in more awful shit, you know? Yeah. And and I agree with that. I mean, there's a part of me that has hit a moment of, well, what's the point? 
Like, who the hell are you to say, hey, buy my book? When there are people dying from injustice and also dying from the injustice of this disease that we don't understand. So it's, it's twofold. It's threefold. It's twelvefold. There is a part of me that's, you know, why are you doing this, Erica? This is like ridiculous. At the same time, this is a book that I, I've worked very, very hard on. And I've worked with a very incredible team that has also worked very, very hard on this book. And not to sort of like puff out my chest and say, we deserve to be commended for this. No, it's, it's not that. But to say, we're trying to put something hopeful and beautiful into this world. And like you said, maybe it's not enough, but we are trying. I do the best that I can. I know it's never going to be enough. And that's, I think, the nature of, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, like, when do you hit, like, the top of the mountain? You really should never hit the top of the mountain. It'll never be enough. But I do what I'm capable of doing in terms of my finances, in terms of giving of my time, in terms of all of this. I do what I can do. And all I can do is hope and pray that the people that have the true power to make the difference are listening and are acting accordingly and are acting the, uh, on the right side of history, I guess, is, is, the, is the right phrase. You do what you can do, the best that you can do, and you really hope that it's enough. You know, that's, and that's it. I mean, we are proud of this book. And we're not like proud, like in a, in a, like a really kind of crass way. We're proud of this book because we worked really hard on it. And we think it's a book that has hope. And I very cognizantly wrote about injustice and this sort of back and forth about people being different and being treated poorly because they're different. Like that was a cognizant thing. Right. Well, I mean, I just, I hope that people know that fiction can sometimes spark things in people. You know, oh, it's it's a book about, you know, a, a mom and her daughter and her, you know, and the grandmother and, you know, how they're all kind of crazy and have magic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot more to it than just that. And I hope that it inspires people. Yes, it takes place in a magical world that doesn't exist, but the problems are the problems we have here. So trying to find a solution or even being inspired to try and find a solution. I hope that that's what it does. And I, it, this was, you know what, what am I afraid of? I'm just going to just be completely honest with you. And like I said, we've known each other for a long time. A while. Yeah. It's been a, a matter of fact, I was just it's been cracking a very up. long time. As long as the AT movie has existed, as we've figured out, it's been longer than the AT movie. It's been, that's right. It's been longer than the AT. Oh, God. Because the AT movie, we did the AT movie, and it was when, because you had a podcast before this. Right. So we go back a ways. So we go back to, to the podcast before this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading this book. And I remember reading issues of it, you know, as it was coming out, you know, when we first spoke. In that time and from, like I said, when I read it the first time and then we did the podcast to when we're doing it now, recording this conversation, the whole world changed. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know, it's like, I don't know if it just changed or maybe that that layer of just this I guess what we think was a protective layer, but maybe there was just sort of like this veil that was over her eyes, maybe got lifted and people were faced with a lot of ugly truths um, between, you know, how, let's say, the COVID-19 situation was carried out to now with the protests that were sparked after the tragic deaths of George Floyd and, you know, Breonna Taylor and so many names that the fact that I would even struggle to name everybody even if I had to name one, it's still too many. Yeah. One is far too many. And same thing with like, you know, with COVID. People were talking about what would be considered an acceptable loss. And I'm like, I'm sorry, no loss over this is acceptable. I enjoyed this book. I really did, as I've enjoyed all of your work. But now rereading this and reading it in full with this new insight into what's been going on. And I don't know if it's necessarily intended, but there's parts of this book, especially towards the end, where it was really intense. And I 
kind of had to sort of like pause for a minute, but I'm, I, at the same time, this is the kind of thing that I was just talking about as far as putting something out there. Cause like you said, fiction has always been a way to carry out messages, you know? And first off, anybody who says like, Oh, I don't want like politics and social issues in my art and my comics and movie, whatever, go fuck yourself. Okay. Don't read anything from the 1970s. Don't read, you know, Denny O'Neill just passed. Don't read Denny O'Neill's uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Uh, don't read, you know, Superman. Don't read, yeah, you don't want your politics in your comics. Okay. Don't read Captain America punching Nazis, you know, punching Hitler. <laughs> Honestly, you can't read or experience anything because what they mean by politics is really not necessarily politics. Like, to me, politics is like finance reform and like zoning laws. Like, this is, yeah. <laughs> that's that stuff on C-SPAN that you would like your grandparents to turn to. You're like, oh, man, like, can we just watch cartoons? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's your civics class. Right, that's politics. But this is about basic human rights, about basic human decency. You can't slap a, a, a political party or affiliation with that. And, you know, I'm as I'm reading this book and these messages, I'm like, they really hit home in a lot of ways. Because what started out as very much a story about a woman trying to find missing children and then looking for her own... This world opens up when she gets back to, oh my gosh, um, Janata? I, I made up a whole lot of words and words that I didn't make up. I literally just like typed in like planet or home in uh, Google Translate. And I think Janata might mean planet in Albanian or some language I've never heard of. So I'm probably mispronouncing it. But yeah, Janata sounds good. Right. But like when you, <laughs> when, when you, when you get to Janata, like, you realize that this struggle is deeply personal, but it's also much larger. You know, you get this class struggle and you get these instances of racism, culture and tradition and how tradition can be harmful. There's so many things going on in this book and it's done in a, a very well-told fashion. Like it flows, but it's amazing how you've been able to build this world and speak on so many things, but yes, yeah, they'll keep this basic arc flowing and of course i know at this point well you teach this stuff now so you know what you're talking about i hope <laughs> if it, i either know what i'm talking about or i've been fooling people really really well i think this is an important book i i appreciate that i appreciate that and that endorsement i really do I, there, there are so many dividing lines that we have that we can draw in this world based on race, based on gender, based on identity, based on financial security, based on housing. You know, there are a million different ways that you can draw a line between two people, two types of people. I hate that. Like, I, I've always hated having categories for people. It's always frustrated me. And I know that there are some people that really sort of find solace in their categorization. And I get that. And I can understand why that is the case. But for me, I, I feel like it, it's almost like we've gotten to a point where everyone has to walk around with a t-shirt listing, you know, the categories that they belong to. And I don't know if that's to sort of find like people or not. And to me, it's the fun is to be with people that are different from you. You know, nobody wants to be stuck with the same exact people because that's kind of boring, you know, like. It's good to be with different types of people, with different cultures, different races, because they're, they're enriching your knowledge and you're enriching theirs. When I started working on Forgotten Home, it was actually a couple years ago. And, you know, I've been joking in a lot of interviews and stuff about how it was like the anti-Frozen. You know, I wanted to write a story about two sisters that hated each other. The, the core of that story ended up becoming a, another story that I haven't published yet. But then some of the bits and bobs of this turned into Forgotten Home. And you see some of that with Queen Rani and her relationship with her sister, right. that sort of contentiousness between the two of them. You know, the story, you know, my, my sort of timeline of the story starts about 60,000 years ago. And basically the idea is that you have these two types of people that are very, very, very similar, almost indistinguishable from each other. And everything's cool. There's interbreeding because there's really not a big difference between the two of them. And then this, you know, meteor or asteroid, I, 
genuinely don't know the difference between the two because I never really took, you know, astrophysics. So please don't at me about like the difference between meteors and asteroids. Like I don't care. A big rock from the sky. You know, what would be my luck is that Neil deGrasse Tyson would hear this and then like at us on Twitter or something. And, and like with this giant litany, which is great and that's fine and everything, except for the fact that it's not important whether it was a meteor or an asteroid, a thing fell from the sky and in doing so made an impact in the ground. And the impact was deep enough that it exposed the crystal Elysia, which is what is kind of like a, a, an anchor point in this story is there's a fight over resources, which let's be honest, that happens on earth. Uh-huh. So because of this sort of cosmological situation, the exposure to this crystal that was deep in the ground, then that starts creating evolutionary changes. And then because of that, they start each generation is getting a little different from the last. And the Chalumbans start turning into the more hardened rock, you know, brutes, you know, larger, stronger, broader shoulders. And I don't mean brutes in like a, an idiotic, you know, they're, they're imbecilic, they don't have brains, no. But they're physically more hulking, these hulking characters. Whereas then who are then known as the Janadans start becoming these like sort of very lithe, more humanoid characters. But before the revelation of this crystal deep in the ground, there wasn't this division. Because then this now happens and each generation is changing and there's now a physical division between them, then it's who should control this pretty sparkly rock. And I think that that's kind of a... um, a metaphor for just in general humanity. You know, it's like there is a resource that somebody wants or everybody wants, and therefore you then have to create a hierarchy. Right. But prior to that, no real hierarchy existed. But there's this unfortunate position that the Chalabans find themselves in because, you know, they are required to mine it. They're required Mm -hmm. to work in the service of acquiring these materials, and yet they're seen as disposable. Think of all the people who work in natural resources on Earth. I would say the vast majority of the people doing the backbreaking labor are not the ones that are actually benefiting financially, emotionally, physically, whatever. They're not the ones that are, that are benefiting from it. Um, it's corporations, it's kingdoms, you know, it's, it's these other government organizations, whether they're monarchies or oligarchies or, you know, even democracies, the people that are doing the, the dangerous stuff are not the ones that are benefiting from this. And that's something that I wanted to touch to, you know, touch on. And yes, the Chalambans have physically evolved to be able to be around non-refined Elysia and be fine. Whereas the Janadans, when they are exposed to it, can go mad. So one would think, oh, well, the fates made it so, because if, if they weren't supposed to be the ones mining it, then why did uh, evolution take them that direction? Until you realize that's not the case. Exactly. But people will find the way to justify their own opinions. And that's kind of something that people hide behind. It's just the way humanity is. Yes, we're talking about, you know, essentially an alien species, but that's, you know, a, a human trait, an anthropomorphic trait, I guess, that can be associated with everything else. Like, that's just something that societies will find a way to make a hierarchy. Right. And that's what society often does is use these things like, you know, manifest destiny or like this divine influence that these structures and policies that are built, they're built as if, you know, this was owed us because our God says that we can have this. Like, this is what we're supposed to do. If you even believe in any kind of higher power, like, I'm pretty sure they had no say in any of this. 
these are the things that you're using to justify horrific actions. And also, this is oppression, you know, pure and simple. And yeah. that same oppression, you know, like even right now, we're still having, and the fact that we're even still having this discussion is is wild to me about the Confederate flag. And one of the lines I hear over and over again in its defense is, well, it's our heritage. And it's like a heritage of what? So then yeah. you think about the Janadians where like, Columbans generally just have no value other than getting this war for them. And this is just the way it's always been done. And the same with, you know, Ronnie and with like these child soldiers. Like this is, this is how things have been done for so long until it takes someone to go, wait a minute, this isn't right. And that's kind of the thing with Lorraine, you know, we see at the end that she was, this is basically, this has been her birthright. It's, it's almost like an Anakin Skywalker kind of thing. Like, you know, everyone talked about how Anakin Skywalker was going to bring balance to the force. They just didn't say when. Right. You know, and yes, at the end, Return of the Jedi, he, you know, technically brings balance to the force by getting rid of the emperor. It was just 30 years later than they thought it was going to happen. So I kind of had a bit of influence with that because Lorraine from the beginning always knew that she was going to be a soldier and her fate from the beginning was to end the war. She ends the war. She just doesn't end it on the way that Ronnie thinks it's going to end. And she ends it later than she thought she would. If Lorraine had stayed as opposed to running away, you know, at 16, 17, if she had stayed and had continued fighting, then yes, she may have been the one to end the war and likely the war ending the way Rani was pushing for it. But she didn't. She delayed that destiny. And even when she came back, she was very reluctant. And there's a scene in book six where I have a lot of side characters. Uh, I try to give them as much development as possible because you have a character named Deco who's basically um, the face of the soldiers, you know, he's a 15 year old boy who's a hell of a soldier. And he's basically like the face of the child army. And you have his parents, Genshi and Vector. And there's a moment when Lorraine is still reluctant about helping the resistance. And Genshi says to her, you know, we're really lucky. Our son has been spared because he's that good of a soldier. But there are so many parents that haven't been as lucky as we are. Right. And she has that sort of mother to mother conversation and says, you know, like, you can stop this. Like, I know you don't think that you can, but you can. And I'm talking to you as a mother to a mother. You love your daughter. I love my son. You know, a lot of people have lost their daughters and sons throughout this. So you have the power to make this right. And that that just simple mother-to-mother conversation is what really triggers Lorraine to say, you know what, okay, I'm going to do this. Because prior to that, everyone telling Lorraine it was her destiny, you have to do this, it's your destiny, you have to do this, it's your destiny. She had been running away from her destiny. That argument was not holding water with her. Right. But when a mother comes to her and says, I'm a mother, you are a mother, I'm speaking to you as a mother. You know what's right. You love your daughter. I love my son. Let's end this and make this world better for them. When Janshi takes the approach different from, you have to do this because it's your destiny. She takes a different approach. That's what gets through to Lorraine. And I think that's what happens a lot of times is that people, you know, you keep hammering the same point and people just dig in more. When you go and you approach someone on a different level, sometimes that's what really sparks the change in them. We went almost six whole books before Lorraine was finally going to embrace her destiny, but she didn't embrace her destiny to embrace her destiny. She embraced her destiny because someone related to her on a different level than just, you have to do this because this is what you have to do. And this has been, you know, the fates have been to have been saying this for 30 years kind of thing. Right. It had to kind of make sense in her own head. Exactly. To me, it almost represents the fact that change is slow. Yeah. Progress is very slow. And God, I wish it were different. A lot gets lost in that time. Yeah. 
And I know it's easy to be cynical, at least within myself. I can't speak for anyone else but me. To feel that it's worthless, to feel, you know, what's like, the point? What's the point? The nerd in me forever will always think of, and this is for some reason I can never stop thinking about uh, Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, in like the last couple of months. You know, that mm-hmm. very scene when like they're inside Helm's Deep and they're trying to barricade the door, and like Urukai are literally like throwing spears through it. Like people are literally just holding it and they're still dying. And he's like, it's mm-hmm. lost. You know, it's over. Like, let them come through. And Eric Warren's like, dude. Like, your men are right here. They're hearing this, first off. Two, they're, they're dying defending this place. Like, it's not over. I'm thinking about this, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. I swear to God, I will swear on a stack of Bibles right now. I'm thinking about that moment, in the, and I'm getting chills thinking about that, because it is such a powerful moment. It really is. When Aragorn says to uh, Theoden, no, it isn't all lost. Like, right out, and he says, right out with me. It's a beautiful moment, but I agree with you. There's a, there's the easy, I guess, for lack of a better term, the easy way to just get cynical and be like, oh, screwed, it doesn't matter. But then it's like you have to remind yourself, like, right out with me. Let's meet them head on, right out with me. And then that's when there's that, like, the music rises and, you know, <laughs> and like everybody, everybody straps on their armor and they go out and they're, they're sort of on that, like, um, it's not a gangplank, but they're sort of like on that that uh, like bridge kind of thing, and they're like knocking Orokai left and right and going crazy and everything. And then look to the east, and what do you see? Was it look to the east or look to the west or look to the north or south or whatever? Either way, and then you see Gandalf the White, who's there. If Theoden had just said, "No, nope, all right, it's over. Pack it in, everybody. We're just going to let them come and kill us." Because it's like if I yeah. say it's over and I give up. What message does that send to Eileen? What message does that send to the kids? And what message am I sending to myself? Yeah, that shit, it hurts. This is, and we just got finished talking about how just damaging this all is. I'm like, we have to fight for our very lives on top of a global pandemic. Yeah. And the fact that People are out in mass, like the very thing that we were told not to do, which was, of course, everything was for months. Stay home. Stay home. <laughs> don't go out if you don't have to. But everybody's out like in large groups, you know, masks on, <laughs> but still fighting this battle because it's one that very much needs to be fought. And, you know, it's like reading this book and it's like, damn, like there are, there are parts like you got me, Erica. And dare I say, I, you know, even if it was an intentional, but. This really hit home in a lot of ways. And, you know, and as much as, you know, we want to be like that hero, like, you know, the very upright, the Supermans and the Captain Americas, but yet we're more like the Theodens or more like the Lorraines where there's that reluctance. There's that, I don't want to say unwillingness, but that unease because in order to do good work and to stand up against things like injustice or hate or just, just the overall bullshit you're going to be put in really difficult situations. And even in this book, like people that you thought were close friends turn out to be bitter enemies. And people that you kind of thought were one way turns out that they actually did change and became allies. But if no one sets a foot out and says, let's move forward, let's do something different, then nothing changes. Yeah. And it's difficult to make that decision, but that's where the strength really lies. But at the same time, like you said, admonishing people for not having that strength is not the way to go. Right. Because you know deep down they're probably feeling guilty as hell to begin with. You know, we can only do what we can do. And if you can support, whether it's by marching or you can support financially by sending to bail funds and to, you know, black trans groups and Black Lives Matter funds and and things like that. Like if you if you can do that financially, great. If you can go out in the streets, great. If the number one thing that you can do is vote. And hopefully, you know, I'm not going to get into a conspiracy theory thing, but hopefully we're all able to vote and and our vote actually counts. Because I think that's one of the worst things in the world is if you feel as if your vote doesn't count because it's, you know, it's like this is my right. And already, you know, that's been taken away from me as well. When I was writing the book and really like outlining it and stuff back in 2014, 2015, 
things were very different, obviously. <laughs> um, it feels like a million years ago. Originally, I had a much darker ending. The ending of the story, no spoilers, it's not a happy ending, but it's a hopeful ending. And my original ending was much darker and was kind of hopeless. And as I was, you know, what, what usually happens is I'll, I'll outline things and it'll be perfectly outlined and then I'll start writing the scripts. Right. And the story comes alive. And when it comes alive, it becomes organic. And when it's organic, it's going to change. And if you fight that natural progression of that natural change, it's going to feel like there was a, there was a conflict and you don't want that. You want it to be seamless. So I kind of leaned in with it and I changed the ending multiple times. I even, I spoke about this on a, on a podcast the other day. Um, I even changed the ending to the point where it was kind of a happy ending, but the tone wasn't right. Like where Trudeau, like basically like you know, there's a knock on the door. Martin, who is uh, Lorraine's coworker, you know, knocks on the door and Trader answers it shirtless, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that's a fun little fanfic ending, Erica, but that doesn't really fit with what you've set up this whole time. I didn't want characters that were purely good or purely bad. I wanted characters to be conflicted. I would say Trader is probably the most tortured of all the characters. God, I love that character so much. Like, can we can we get more Trudeau? Like, I, I don't know. You said there was another story, but <laughs> I would love to write write more with him. And I give a lot of credit to Comicsology Originals because this was always plotted as eight issues. And there are a lot of publishers that are a little wary of such a you know long series. When I was originally talking to some publishers, they're like, "Okay, well, we really like the story, but we want to cut it down to five issues or six issues." And a lot of that would have cut out my favorite bits, which are Trudaire and Carol and Deco and Bajek. Because we all know a couple like Deco and Bajek. Like mm-hmm. the two of them fight tooth and nail with each other, but they love each other so much. And they're always snarky and snide with each other, but they love each other so much. I feel called out, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm called out by it. You've been around me and AJ. I'm called out by it. The Chalumbans are set up to to be these like lumbering, idiotic people with like no real feelings. I wanted to show that that's absolutely not true. And I used them as sort of like my, my basis for that. You know, we get into their relationship. We see the way they, you know, interact with each other, the way they interact with other people. You know, they, they obviously do have feelings. They're not just these sort of like hulking masses, you know, just point them in a direction and tell them to do the work. Like they're not, they have feelings. And I wanted to show that. Unfortunately, for some of the other publishers that wanted me to cut things down, I wouldn't have been able to show that. And I think that that's really important to the story as a whole. I mean, some people might just think it's like comic relief and it is absolutely, you know, like Bajek teasing Degal about things. And that's, it's absolutely comic relief. But because it is, you know, it's a heavy story, so you need these bits of levity, but it also shows there, and I keep using the word humanity, which isn't the correct word, but you know, I mean, like humanity just in general, like empathy, I guess, is the, is the word that I'm really more looking for. You know? Right. I think that is a really good way to describe it. So I wanted that to be there as well. Comicsology Originals, I mean, we talked back and forth about making it five or six issues. And I said, you know, I kind of pleaded the case by saying, you know, yeah, I can totally cut it down and make it five to six issues. But the story, I think, is going to suffer. They took a moment and said, you know what? Tell the story that you want to tell. Take it to eight. And I really and I thank Chip and, and the crew over there for saying, OK, let's do it. And I really appreciate them putting that faith in me to do that. I think Trader ha- is very complex with where his heart is. And, you know, I wanted to show the fact that he just wants to love and be loved. And he's been rejected multiple times. And yet he still has faith and still has heart. And that's really tough. It's very, very difficult for somebody. And I wanted to show, you know, Carol just being sort of this you know, serious person, but, you know, when it comes to the rebellion, but at the same time, he's a guy who just likes to get drunk, make out and, you know, have fun, you know, 
And I wanted to show that, you know, despite their breakup and despite the end of their romantic relationship, they, they still respect each other. They're still brothers in arms, even though there is still a twinge of like, Carol is still kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, it was just a fling, whereas, whereas Trader is more like, it meant more than that to me. And there's still a little twinge of that in there. It, to me, this is an emotional story. And I want to say the right things. One of the things that, that I was talking to a couple of people about is, you know, they say like, oh, you have like diversity in terms of relationships, diversity in terms of race, diversity. Yeah. I don't look at it as, oh, it's diversity. I look at it as that's life. So, you know, yeah, it's great that I have interracial relationships and there are, you know, relationships that are with non-binary characters and, you know, polyamorous relationships and things like that. I didn't put those in to check boxes on a list. I put those in because those are things that normal everyday people, those are the types of relationships that normal everyday people have. Right. It's like a normalization because... I mean, and I don't know, maybe people may disagree with that, but I think that that's one of the ways that you can introduce these things by just making it appear normal. And yes, maybe you don't see it as often, but yet it's done in a very tasteful, just very matter-of-fact kind of way. I think that if people make a big deal, I think one of the, the things that people sort of like shake their fist at, you know, oh, there's too much diversity in comics or, you know, that kind of, you know, bullshit is because maybe in the story they feel that it's been like hammered over their head. At the same time, if you just treat it like it's a normal thing, it's, you know, a normal thing. And I'm not saying there's a right way and a wrong way. And, and you know, right. I, I don't want people to think, well, you know, some situations it has to be. And there are some stories that are just about someone's gender identity or things like, and that's what the story is about. And that's fine. I'm just saying in this story, that particular aspect of these characters is not what the story is about. So because of that, I make it just the regular fabric. Like the idea of, you know, they're they're at this beautiful banquet for when Trudere and um and Lorraine get engaged, you know, and they have basically like this big engagement party. The two of them are like, okay, so we're sitting here and this is like a big formal thing and everybody's eating <laughs> and we're starving. And lo and behold, Carol shows up and he says, I'm going to, you know, with, with like a big plate from the buffet and, you know, instead of just being like, yes, here, take it, you know, he's, he's kind of a playful character. So he's like, I'll give this to you for a kiss. And he says that to Lorraine in front of Lorraine's fiance, who was also his best friend, but they have that relationship that it's okay. And so Carol steals a kiss from Lorraine and he also steals a kiss from Trader. And it wasn't that Lorraine was weirded out that the two men kissed. It was that the kiss lasted as long as it did. And that's what got her. Like she didn't care that, that it was two guys. What she cared was that it lasted a lot longer than her kiss. And maybe she was jealous. Who knows? Because <laughs> I think you know? she even alludes to the fact that she kind of had an idea. And it was less of like shock and more of a, all right, that 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 tracks. Yeah. And, and she also acknowledges her own complicity in the relationship breaking up. Where she says, you know, like, yeah, I was with Michael when I was supposed to be with you. But you were also with Carol when you were supposed to be with me. So we're both wrong. We're both absolutely wrong in this. And that's when, you know, Trader is like, yeah, I was wrong too. I was wrong because I thought that I could make it work. I thought we could be in this type of relationship where everybody, we could all love each other. But then obviously that wasn't the case with you. And I thought, okay, well, Lorraine's left me. Maybe Trader and I can be in a relationship. And Trader was like, yeah, this is just some fun. You know, so Trader is the one who really gets the short end. I think in a lot of ways, but he's loyal. He is so damn loyal. He's loyal to a fault, you know, and he's loyal to a fault to, to his own detriment. I wouldn't go so far as to say he's like a martyr, but he loves so hard and so strongly that of course he's going to get hurt, right. you know? And at the same time, he follows orders because he's that loyal. And we keep talking about him, even though he's not the, the main star of the, of the story. But, you know, the story really revolves around Joanna and Ronnie and Lorraine. Um, and 
Joanna, I think, was an interesting character because she basically, you know, Lorraine decided, okay, I was raised in a very strict household, so I'm going to be the cool mom. If I'm the cool mom, then my daughter will never, ever hate me and never want to run away, completely forgoing the fact that this rebellious spirit is in her. Right. You know, like not acknowledging, well, I was a rebellious teen. Maybe my own daughter will be. You know, just sort of blaming Rani and the way Rani treated her. So when, you know, Joanna gets to Janata, it's like, whoa, not only did my mom not tell me about this, I'm a princess here? Like, give me my purple unicorn and I am happy. You know? (laughs) And I think that's one of the great things about Lorraine is that, you know, making a character that still grows and of course you know protagonists do have to find a way to grow in their stories and it's not the antagonist but in a way where like you said it's not so black and white like she has to own up to a lot of the mistakes she made including okay so maybe she wasn't as let's say overbearing as let's say her sister was or as maybe spiteful as her sister was but in the attempt of trying to protect her daughter which you know any good parent would do that in a way, almost accidentally cause a, a rift and some damage there and having ways to reconcile that because there are times when like Ronnie, like there are certain lines that she says where, yes, it's framed in the idea of malice, but they're not entirely incorrect. Yeah. There's a line that I have back, way, way, way back from M3 that um, Vela says to Morris. Um, she says, even the devil tells the truth sometimes. Yeah, but when Ronnie does tell that truth, it's always done in this manipulative sense, where yeah. it, it always becomes a means of control to not even just, let's say, the soldiers to or like the Chalambans or just people in general. Everything is framed to serve her needs, and that's sort of the, I guess, difference. And yes, Lorraine did kind of mess things up with Joanna, but... It wasn't out of a place of necessarily trying to hurt her. I mean, it it retroactively did to a certain extent. But I think that's sort of the difference is, you know, we can disappoint and hurt people that we care for, you know, unintentionally. But, there, you know, there are others who do it and they're vastly aware of what they're doing. And I think, I mean, what's that phrase? Like, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right, exactly. Even if your intentions are to protect someone. You're making decisions for for somebody else. You're removing their agency. You're you're taking that away from them, and therefore, you're making decisions for them. And I think that was the, one of the biggest things that Joanna was so upset about was this idea of you're taking away all the decisions that I have. And there's gosh, I feel like we barely even scratch the surface of this. <laughs> Thank you for reaching out, as always. I love talking to you and to Eileen, and you're both very supportive and pure of heart and like i don't know well pure of heart i don't know I, i'm a jerk <laughs> no but like but you're both really supportive and you both tend to pick up on things that are more below the surface because sometimes the themes of stories that i write or sometimes you know social stories that i write you know the story the the, the social aspect of it is a, a byproduct of the story itself with this, I, I wanted to make sure that there were specific things that were in there. I didn't want the story to, to be just about that. I wanted the story to be about these three women, you know, these three generations of women who all have the same abilities and all have very different ideas of what it means to be royalty in a certain, er- in a certain place. And that's basically what it is. It's like these three women fighting for their own agency and fighting to, you know, almost like might makes right kind of thing. And this fight on as many fronts as it's taken, it is hard. It's difficult. Isn't even close to describing it, but I also know that it's worth it because I know that at least if we didn't, I personally know I couldn't, you know, sleep at night or live with myself knowing that there was some way that we could have at least attempted to put some good out and then just chose not to. I think if the only thing that you can do is put beautiful art out in the world, then I think that it might not be enough for some people, but it might be enough for others. Right. 
And that's, you, you can only do what you can do and just try and do the best that you can do. And thank you, Erica. And everybody, please, for all that is good in the world, check this book out. <laughs> I know you'll enjoy it. And especially just because I said so, and I know I'm pretty awesome myself. <laughs> even if you take the social, like, even if you, you, you take the social issues out of it, it's an adventure book about family. So if you want to take out the social issues about, like, racial injustice and war and things like that, take all of that out and just read it with the mind of it's an adventure story with magic about family. If you have Comixology Unlimited, Kindle Unlimited, or Prime Reading, you can then go and you can uh, read the book for free. Uh, it's Forgotten Home. Marika Cresta is the incredible line artist. Matt Emmons is the incredible colorist. Cardinal Ray Lettered. Yazelle Ayala designed all the beautiful Janadin gowns. And Kevin Maher did the fabulous logo. Read the book. It's good. People like it. And if you don't like it, then I'm sorry. But it's a good book, and it's a fun book, and it'll make you think. And thank you so much, Erica. And I look forward to doing this again, hopefully. But before we go, um, as you know, I like to do, let everybody know where they can interact with you. Because uh, I know you did mention where people can read Forgotten Home. But if there's anything else you want to throw out real quick, uh, please do so. Well, I'm on Twitter, um, Erica Schultz 42 on Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram, Erica Schultz writes W R I T E S. Um, and also Erica Schultz writes.com. I have all the books that I've done in the past on my website, Erica Schultz writes.com. So if you want to pick up books, I've been mailing out some books to people. I mail everything wearing gloves and a mask, um, and I, you know, make sure everything's disinfected and packaged properly. So if anybody wants to pick up any other books aside from Forgotten Home, you can certainly do that. But I appreciate you having me on, Adrian. I always love talking with you. And Eileen wasn't here, but I always enjoy talking with you, too. Because like I said, you guys, you're good peeps. Uh -huh. <laughs> and know way too much about weird pop culture minutia. Which, by the way, before we close out... um. I was flipping through the channels the other day, and the island came on, and I could not stop <laughs> laughing. Oh, man, the island. Yeah. So thanks for that, and um, listen to the previous episode for that story, because <laughs> yeah. we go some places on that one. But that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. For more great podcasts, visit AdrianHasIssues.com.